Hi, this is Sandra Champlain, host of We Don't Die Radio and Shades of the Afterlife. I've got some great news if you are a fan of the show, Afterlife Evidence, or my work. I have a new Patreon club, and by joining for any donation amount, you get future episodes of this show commercial-free, early, usually a week or two before the general public does, and I have a special list of my combined now over 550 episodes about the afterlife between the two shows. You can easily search for any topic or any guest, click on the link, and go right to it. If you're interested, go to patreon.com and search for Sandra Champlain or We Don't Die Radio. You can also find it at wedontdie.com, where, of course, we host weekly medium classes, our free Sunday gathering with medium demonstration, and so much more. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Now, this is a video interview. So if you are listening and you would rather be watching myself and my wonderful guests, just head over to YouTube and type in We Don't Die 405. I'm so excited to share our guests with you today. We have two friends, both New York Times bestselling authors with over 50 years of investigating life after death. Dr. Raymond Moody is the leading authority on the near-death experience, a phrase he coined in the late 70s. His groundbreaking work, Life After Life, completely changed the way we view Death and Dying, and has sold more than 13 million copies worth worldwide. Paul Perry is the co-author of five New York Times bestsellers, including The Light Beyond with Raymond Moody, Saved by the Light with Danian Brinkley, and Evidence of the Afterlife with Dr. Jeffrey Long. He has co-written a dozen of books on near-death experiences, four of them with Dr. Moody, and directed two popular documentary films on the subject. And the most exciting news is they have a brand new book together called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife. Of course, you can visit Dr. Moody's website at lifeafterlife.com and Paul's site at paulperryproductions.com. Gentlemen, a warm welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Hi there. Hello. Thank you so much for this invitation. Well, I'm excited not just to share you, but it's two for the price of one today. Two wonderful gentlemen and me. How lucky am I? How did you two first meet, if I can ask that question? Oh, that was interesting. Uh, Raymond was uh, working on a book uh, at the time. Was uh, working title was Light Beyond. That's what it ended up being called. And I was editing... Uh, a major health magazine in New York called American Health. And my agent took me out to lunch one day and he said, uh, hey, would you mind giving uh, Dr. Raymond Moody a hand in writing a book? And I said, I don't even know who Dr. Moody is. And, and he said, and he said, really? He, he named the near-death experience and defined it. And I said, I don't know what a near-death experience is. And so Nat, our agent, says, and he's a, he's, he's an abrupt guy. 
And he says, I can't believe it. You're editing a major health magazine. You're not smart enough to know what a near-death experience is. You need to go meet Raymond Moody and, and study this whole field. And so that's what I did. I went to uh, Atlanta. Raymond was, well, Raymond was living in uh, Carrollton at the time, Georgia. And uh, we talked about the book, The Light Beyond. We hit it off right away. And uh, one thing leads to another. And uh, since then, we've written, this is our sixth book together. Proof of Life After Life is our sixth book. And, And one book always leads to a question. And the question that needs to be answered. And so that's what we do. We'll write a book and all of a sudden they'll be with the light beyond. It was, uh, gee, there's nothing in this book about children and near-death experiences. And Raymond said, well, you know, there's not much research being done on it. But he directed me to Melvin Morris in Seattle. And I went to, to see Melvin. And we wrote, we wrote four books on, on uh, children and near-death experiences and other uh, uh, aspects of the near-death experience, and three of those were New York Times bestsellers, and uh, and then it would go on and on. We'd have question after question, book after book, and that's what we did from that point to now is answer these questions. Incredible, right. Dr. Moody. You yeah. remember when you met Paul? <clears throat> I certainly do, and and you know, Paul and I, I think we have a great. Um, you know, working team here because I, I just tell you the truth. All the people who know me very well uh, will tell you it's true. But in fact, I am such a bore in the way I think. <laughs> oh. I, all right. Listen, I was a professor of philosophy and logic. And my lifelong thing since the age of 18 is ancient Greek philosophy. Well, there's a bestseller for you, right? So what I'm getting at is this is not most people's fair, but it's how I got interested in this. From Plato studied this, and the early Greek philosophers knew about these things. That's how I found out about it in the long run. But, you know, a a philosopher is going to be the right person to present some of this information to the the average person, I think. And so I tend to talk in abstractions and 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 put the information in that context. Whereas Paul can say, hey, just a minute here, professor. You know, that doesn't make any sense to what my and you know, we we together we come up with a way, I think, to put it present information that is sometimes very, you know, complex. Hopefully, in a way that um, just people will will um, relate to it and and benefit from it. Primarily. Yeah. And what I have to say also that Raymond is one of the probably the most exciting and interesting person I know, and for reasons just stated, is uh, he knows everything. Oh no, well, I so- know enough to know. I don't know hardly anything. Is the right I am, you know. He, he knows nothing about the Yankees or the LA Dodgers. No, no. But, I do know about the professional wrestling, though. That's true. That's, that's another that. subject, though. <laughs> we need to follow our passions, right? We can't that's talk right. about the afterlife. Right. 
But, you know, this, this topic that you're interested in, Sandra, and Paul and I are interested in, I mean, it's, it's been my experience, beginning at age 18, actually, that when people reach a certain age, it's, and, and especially so, I think, that people have been so successful that they've spent their lifetime focusing on their business or the busy work and, you know, just focusing on that side of life and, and have been very, you know, done that very well on that side of life. When they reach a certain age, say 50s, 60s, 70s, they begin to wake up to this question of life after death, which has been put aside or thought of as uh, trivial or, you know, it doesn't happen. Or, and, uh, and then they just automatically wake up to it. Uh, by the way, that reason I found out about that at age 18 was I read it at my hero Plato, my first philosophy class in September of 62. Reading the first few pages of Plato's Republic, I decided then there to shift from astronomy, which is why I went there to study, immediately to philosophy. Because this, why is Plato's work still in print at any store 2,300 years? People should ask themselves that. Well, number one, because it is amazing, terrific stuff. And this republic is about in the end a near-death experience it starts with this old guy who's been very successful in life he says and socrates who's then about 20 meets the old guy says you know kephalos what's it like from your point of view oh kephalos says i've been very successful in my business made a lot of money i've spent all time on my my business and now here i am I, I saw all those stories I heard about as the, about the afterlife when I was a kid, coming back. And these people developed this sense of urgency. Then in a later Plato dialogue, I read that same semester, he talked about the importance of this question of life after death. So that's how I got into this. And it's it came from Greek philosophy, where it was a big point of study. And um, so <clears throat> that is, is the, and, and yet, of course, all the other things, too, that, that people are concerned about. Because I, after I got my PhD in philosophy and as a philosophy professor, I went into psychiatry with my specific interest in it being why people kill people. I, from a law enforcement family, I rode in a cop car when I was a kid. I mean, my brother a sheriff my two uncles uh, sheriffs or chief of police two cousins i mean my dad worked for the dea as a surgeon and for this drug stuff and my you see how it is you know so to me this big question which i studied from early on is why in the world would somebody kill somebody so I studied that in psychiatry and I worked in a unit for the criminally insane that was full of these people that you read about in the National Enquirer <laughs> was my daily work. And so um, through all of this, I have developed just a, 
I think a great piece in one respect with respect to the question of life after death and not through a logical process exactly because there's great logical difficulties in trying to prove an afterlife but thinking it through myself I just give up <laughs> you know to me it looks like yeah, there's a life after death, as counterintuitive as it still seems to me. <clears throat> and having no template from it, from childhood, to, it's like my dad was sarcastic about religion when I was a kid. He, all right, a, a surgeon, a medic in World War II of the Pacific, there, the things he must have seen. Uh, but he was just sarcastic about religion, so I was free of it. And I just mostly our friends were Jewish because they didn't mind that dad was surgeon was, you know, not, not going to all these church things. And so um, I was free in that environment and then just to inquire. So, um, but always debating with myself about it there. It's this thing about oxygen deprivation to the brain. I'm sorry, that's baloney, but people have got to hold on to that, and I'll explain why, all right? And that is, this information is so challenging that um, most people are afraid of it. They really are. So it has to be tamed by the society as some sort of customary framework to talk about it in. And the framework we have goes right back to Plato and Democritus, the Greek philosopher who lived about the same thing. Democritus, the atomist, said, oh, this is just residual biological activity and the, you know, from the atoms and it's, there's no such thing as a moment of death. That's why this experience occurs. Plato said, oh, no, this is real. About the same debate we have today, right? And so I realized quickly that that debate is meaningless because number one, people have the same experience identically who are not themselves ill or injured or going through our resuscitation, but rather who are there in the presence of somebody who is dying. And as that happens, it's a very frequent occurrence that people standing around say things like, oh, as grandma was dying, I myself, I lifted out of my body. I started going through my, toward this light with my grandma. Or people say, as grandma was dying, apparitions of the dying person's loved ones come in the room. People see that the whole room fills with light. And, and most strikingly to me, I guess the strangest thing I know about this whole field is, that in many cases I've studied over the years, the bystander at the death of someone else, that as the person is dying, will themselves empathically co-participate in the dying life review of the person there. And this to me is startling information and it makes me trying to come up with some reason that I could get myself recused from my life review because, you know, the idea of itself is enough to scare you to worry about. But 
you know, the idea of having a spectator there, these people pass the popcorn. That's, you know, that's, but it happens and happens not just to people as I would have thought who are intimate and know the person well, but in one case, a medical doctor told me of seeing his dying patient's life review who had never even laid his eyes on the patient before he's just called to the ER to. So what I'm talking about is that something odd is going on here that does not fit into the view of reality that we're pretty much forced to maintain, you know, in everyday life. So it's, but the older you get, the more you're amenable to exploring these things. I noticed that the older I get, the more of my friends who are my age have had some kind of experience in their life, which is, is like stepping over into some other realm of existence. And so where I've come on it is I give up. You know, to really thinking it out, what got to me was, <clears throat> see, I have a lot of friends who are medical doctors whose medical judgment I would trust 100% if something happened to me. And those same friends of mine tell me that, yeah, they had this near-death experience. And not only was it real, but it was more real than this ordinary reality. And you know the incredible things that happen, if you know the story probably of Anthony Chicoria, the um, PhD in physiology, MD, a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU, who had a profound near-death experience and at in 1994, was struck in the head by a bolt of lightning, had a cardiac arrest, and was at a family reunion, was able to look all around and saw all of his, you know, saw his relatives who were there at the reunion at the resort center. Even though he was, you know, lying by the phone, apparently dead. And, you know, Anthony said, you know, this is more real than real. And, and then Anthony, who had never had any interest in music, started getting fascinated by the piano. Started having dreams in which he was playing a piano on a concert stage, playing the same music learned how to play the piano um, and transcribed this music and is now in addition to being a you know renowned orthopedic surgeon as a you know a famed <laughs> concert pianist too I mean see things like that don't make any sense <laughs> if this this world is as we you know we think think by common sense that, that it is is constituted now what if i am an addict of not a virtue person an addict of exercise i gotta get out every day and walk okay it's like i ask myself if heaven forbid something were to happen to my foot would i entrust my foot to anthony chicoria Knowing that he, knowing he's out, yes, absolutely. So, see, and I could go on with it, you know, a dozen other physicians, that same story, but I give up. He said, I can't, I can't figure out how I could reconcile the fact that I would put my health 
myself in these doctors' hands, you know, in a life or death situation, with the the fact that they all tell me that this thing is more real than any reality that I've experienced. And so to me that I I I, I give up. I can't because you know I I can't think my way out of that one. I think as human beings we're hardwired not to believe. Maybe it's to be tied in with the game of life. I'm not there sure. There you go. I've experienced miracles myself, but I wake up in the morning thinking, is this all real? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I it think almost everybody's experienced some kind of a miracle and yeah. they don't recognize it or they don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. And and when you start to mention, for instance, with, with shared death experiences, which is what this book is about, uh, if you start to talk to people about what you're working on, they w- almost everybody will say, well, I've had an experience like that. And I didn't talk about it because I thought people would think I was wacky or uh, I just never thought it was an appropriate conversation. For whatever reason, they don't like to bring it up. Once you bring it up, you start to open up the flower, as it were, and and people start to deliver uh, information that uh, you previously didn't know was out there. You know, that was the way that's how it was with near death experiences. And this book is vastly different from near-death experiences because it's about shared death experiences, which are experiences that take place uh, uh, with people who are at the, essentially at the bedside of someone who's dying, who's dying and they share their death experience. Right. Just, you know, I mean, I just stories flood your mind. I, I saw this old Mainer guy who was in his 80s who was a GP in uh, uh, Maine, rural Maine, for all of his career. And he was telling me, um, at this was at the Council Grove Consciousness um, seminar that was put on by the Miniature Foundation. And uh, he was saying that he had this pup patient he had had a long time she was elderly and she had hypertension and she had what we call a corbovina which is a big round art and it's caused by if the high blood pressure over a long period of time the the, car, the heart sometimes just comes out and looks kind of round from pressure it's like a cow heart and these hearts are very irritable and so um this woman who was, I think, in her 90s, I'm pretty sure he said. And uh, he, you know, they kept going, and then her heart would stop, and then they would zap her, and she's back. And finally, she said there, this guy, the doctor, and she said, you know, look, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm please, just let me go. I'm 90, whatever, please. And so, but, you know, that's an easy thing to say, right? Doctor, let me go. But think of it from the point of view of the doctor or the nurse, you know, they're trained to, it's just a different, and so, but anyway, the, this woman had had a friend there with her, this other woman that she had known, you know, just decades and decades, and, and so that her friend was there with her in the hospital, so the friend said, well, I'll, you know, I'll be with her, and I, you know, just everybody backed off 
Then next time it happens, I'll, yeah, I'll just let her die. So all that was the medical people backed off. Then pretty soon, indeed, the, the, el, you know, the elderly woman did the heart stop and all, but her friend was embracing her at this time. And incredibly, the, when, when the friend felt the heart stop, it startled her and she jerked and because the heart is so, you know, irritable, bump, bump, bump again. Oh, but, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. So, you know, that was the dress rehearsal. So now everybody packs off. <laughs> then the next time, no, no problem. So the woman just passes away. But the, this doctor told me, he said, the, the, the friend told, told him that as her friend was dying, she said she herself, the friend, went out of her body and was going up right with her friend toward this light. And she saw the people she recognized as the friends and relatives of her, her friend, and all of them had died and so on. And I mean, I could go on telling you hundreds, more than a hundred, as many as you want stories like that. And it's, it's this near-death experience is not something that is somehow generated by an oxygen deprivation deprived brain but it's going to take something else than what we have for society to wake up with that because this is too threatening for people for many people otherwise some people can accept that there's an afterlife this idea scares a lot of other people so we're still going to be stuck for a while in this sort of framework is the the reality versus the oxygen deprivation but you know one thing those folks never think of is even if you could prove that it was not oxygen deprivation to the brain, that still wouldn't prove that it's life after death. See, so in a way, the, that is all irrelevant anyway. But, but it's because a certain kind of mind, they've got to have this kind of framework to process it. But when this is going to come all the loose, it's when we can step outside of that framework and look at whole new possibilities about these near-death experiences. Yeah, I'd like to just read the titles of your reasons, and then maybe we can talk about them. Again, this is from your book, which I really recommend everybody gets because it is loaded with stories. We love stories of what happens to people when we get the, and we get the goosebumps of, you know, the reunions and all that. This is from the Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife. So it's all about the shared death experiences, but different kinds. So reason one, out-of-body experiences. Reason two, precognitive experiences. Number three, the transforming light. Number four, terminal lucidity. Number five, spontaneous, muse, spontaneous muses, healings, and skills. Uh, reason number six, light, mist, and music. And number seven, the psychomantium. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So where do we begin? Because like I said, it, thank you for sending me a, a copy of the book before it's uh, published. And for anybody who's watching, it's uh, coming out very shortly, beginning of September 2023. You can pre-order it. You may already have a copy, depending on when you're watching it. But it's just chock full of stories that I love. So we're talking about different things. So 
out-of-body experiences. These are the things like the the near-death experience, correct? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's, that's part of, part of the near-death experience. Yeah. Okay. And precognitive <laughs> experiences. It's tough when there's three of us together, but we'll go with it. Yeah. What's a precognitive experience? Well, these are these are not all necessarily related to near-death experiences. I think that's the beauty of a shared death experience. A shared death experience is when someone who is well shares the death experience of someone who's dying. So in the case of a precognitive experience, it would be, as an example, uh, we have a couple of case studies in here of people who had loved ones in China, and they were in England, and they wake up in the middle of the night and they see uh, this person who's in China standing at the foot of their bed and tells them, I'm dying. I'm, I'm going, I've, I've died and, uh, and I'll miss you. And, and then that's the end of the experience. But they lay, it's later proven that this person did die at the same time that they had appeared to this individual. And we have doctors who have seen their, their fathers, uh, They've woken up and they've seen their father standing there. And the father says, uh, you know, you better talk to your mother because uh, I've spoken to her and, and she knows that, I, that I'm dead. You better talk to your mother and get the facts. So that's precognitive. It's, it's that kind of an experience. Uh, it's not necessarily related to a near-death experience, but it's very different. Uh, there's other I, ones. Go ahead. No, go. no, you go ahead, Paul. Uh, but there's there's other ones in here that aren't they aren't all related to near death experiences. And I think that's really the power of this book is that this book takes mm -hmm. off from near death experiences, which are subjective experiences. In other words, the person who has it as an NDE is the person who has it and, and no one else has had it. And no one else can really experience what they experienced. But a shared death experience is when someone shares the experience of a dying individual. And that's what makes this book very different. So if you look at things like uh, uh, Light, Mist, and Music, the chapter on Light, Mist, and Music, we have, once again, a number of, of physicians who, in a hospital, have actually seen a light or a, or a mist leave a person's body as they die. Or we have people who, uh, who hear music when someone is dying. They'll be in the room and they'll hear music. Uh, and sometimes there might be several people in the room with, with this individual who hear music and then several who don't. And that's one of the puzzles of shared death experiences. Right. Absolutely. Dr. Moody? You were mentioning too earlier, uh, Sandra, um, about out-of-body experiences, which are, yes, that is a, um, a rather mind-boggling part of near-death experiences where people say that uh, after they often say they hear the doctor pronounce them dead or say that they've died or whatever but they say from their point of view they they feel that they actually leave their physical bodies and they drift up typically in most of the stories i hear that's in an operating room or medical uh, facility or whatever so and in those circumstances, people say they can rise up, they see their body down below, they can see the doctors and nurses working on it, but that they are, their consciousness is separated. And then they say in this circumstance, it's 
you can understand what the doctor or nurse or whoever are communicating, but you don't hear their voice. That you sort of pick up on what they're communicating by mind. Just and also that um, that when they try to communicate in turn, that nobody can hear them. So they're kind of walled off, and they say that is they it kind of dawns on them that this might be connected with what we call death. And so with that realization, they say they go through this passageway into another world. But you know, those near those out-of-body experiences are are very characteristic of near-death experiences, but they also occur in other circumstances. Um, sometimes just spontaneously for reasons unknown. Um, I have a wonderful friend in Paris named Eric Pagani, who I think he used to be with NPR as an expert on classical music, as I call it. But, but um, he is a clinical psychologist, very well respected in, in France. And the, incidentally, the, the psychological director of uh, of Disneyland Paris, which is his favorite position, <laughs> being a, a fan of, of uh, Donald Duck as I am. And um, so, but uh, he is, Eric is such a fine person. I mean, he, his parents must have just been completely kind to him. He's just the sweetest person in the world. But he's a psychologist, he writes for psychology and is an expert in there. But he, he's also a concert pianist. And um, <clears throat> Eric was telling me in 1988, we were together and he said he was playing this piece and that on stage, and all of a sudden he felt himself leave his body. He could see his body down below, he was in this light. And 17 minutes later, he came back to the, to the, keyboard and seven, 17 minutes and three pieces he had played. But in his point of view, it was out there. And, you know, Eric is so modest. So I said, well, did the people appreciate the music? And, you know, he's so much, oh, yes, they seem to. His sister happened to be there, had been there at this concert, and she said, as a matter of fact, that people were yelling, screaming and shouting up and down. And uh, that and uh, so he said, well, if, you know, I'm a psychologist, he said, you know, if this happened to me, it's happened to other musicians. So he made a, just a month, had a lot of friends who were operatic singers and so on. He surveyed them and he found, yeah, many cases where people in singing great music will just be transported out of their bodies. And it happens to see in the verge of death, we have many cases of people who uh, just, you know, people, their relatives who've left behind said he had never any interest in poetry or music. And but just before he died, he started composing poetry or 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 reciting poetry as they're dying, and sometimes singing as they are dying. And see, this is a common phenomenon and far less common than near-death experiences. But if you have a room of 150, 200 people and you raise this question, anybody ever hear of this among their family? 
I guarantee you two or three people, yeah. And if you have the right perspective, you realize this is vast. Even Socrates had this during his dying experience as recorded by Plato, that even though he had never had any interest in music and kind of disdained it, like the day of just a few days before he's dying, he got dreams and visions to tell him to write verse. And he compared it to the swan song. The Greeks believed that, believed that just as before a swans die, they sing the most beautiful song at all. And so <clears throat> Socrates sang, the reason they do it is that they know that they're going to shortly be joined with the gods. And so I remember reading that and being impressed at the age of 18. Flash forward to 1972, and I saw that very thing. Or, no, 1974. I saw that very thing happen before my eyes when we were trying to resuscitate an elderly lady who was reciting poetry. She was dying. And, you know, what is this? Well, you know, it's a common thing, but we don't know much about it. It's fascinating. We had one really incredible story from the 1930s of a woman who had uh, meningitis as a child and as a result was essentially non-functional her entire life. She fouled herself. She couldn't, she couldn't speak. Uh, she couldn't communicate in much of any way at all. And then as she was dying, she started singing. And she started singing a song. She never communicated like I say, anything before, she started singing a song, saying it so beautifully that the, the medical staff was weeping and they were all pouring into her room to hear this phenomenon take place. And she seemed to have acquired uh, information. She seemed to have acquired knowledge in her final moments. She sang, and then shortly thereafter, she died. Yeah. And that's, that's also known as terminal lucidity where yeah. someone becomes very lucid at the point of being terminal. Sandra, I am, I am a social foe, you know, and, and in my own kind of restricted social network, I had one, uh, one dear friend that I knew for years who sang as she died. And I had a dear friend um, whose who told me that his brother did the same thing. His, his brother was dying. So that's just from my own association. And so too. that means there's lots of this. Yeah, I was just thinking there are people, too, that whether it's dementia, Alzheimer's, that there's nothing left. And then there are these bursts. There can be yes. bursts of they recognize everybody in the room. That's right. Into beyond. Is that all it could be tied in with this? Terminal yes, lucidity? this is terminal lucidity. That's right. Like, there, was a, there was one written about in Time magazine uh, where a, a doctor wrote about this, uh, an oncologist. And this person he was talking about had essentially a head full of tumors. And he was just dead. He was essentially living dead. But at the last moment, when his children came into the room, he popped out of it. And he spoke with great lucidity about how, how pleased he was to be their father and uh, what he would like to see continue in the family. And they thought, 
he's healed. We can take him home. And within a few hours, he passed away. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the story of Terminal City. It's, uh, I think it's very, I think it's going to be one of the most common uh, paranormal experiences. Yeah, you know, Sandra, it's um, people used to know about this as just folk knowledge, and because they called it Fay, F E Y, I think, was if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, the sort of central definition of that is a state of um, ex- extraordinary enhanced consciousness that portends imminent death. And people knew about that when people died at home. But then people started dying in the hospital. But see, if anybody, I mean, I can attest this. I, you know, I obviously, one of my activities as a medical doctor, a lot of it had to do with the terminal ill, because that was, I was known for that, and people would call me in and so on. And, uh, and I, it, anybody who, is in that situation for any period of time, hospice workers or whatever, you're going to see this. And the trouble is, when you describe it, it's like you can't, nobody can believe it. I know the description, but all right, here is the description. It's like, as a person died, they've even been demented. It's like no communication for a long time. And then as they die, here you go. Hold on to your hat. They light up, I swear to you. And it's not the light coming from a light bulb or from the sun. It's coming from inside of them. It's just this pure light. It's also it's, called a lightning experience, by the way. Yeah. And, and people, um, it's, it's like they become completely coherent. It's like my uncle, as he was dying, went around and gave a message to everybody in the family personally, just to his immediate family, but it was just a same thing, something to every, and he had been, you know, uptunded for this, you know, it's, it's just, and, and yet, you know, that you know that if you talk about this, nobody else who hasn't seen it is even capable of believing it. And maybe they shouldn't be. You know, I mean, I don't know that people should necessarily accept this on the basis of what some expert says. It, but it's because it uh, it makes no sense unless you've seen it. You know, it's, but it is incredible. I, I had this guy was a well-known oncologist. <laughs> And uh, he was telling me, and uh, he was, I guess, in his 70s when he was telling me this. He said he had this patient he had been dealing with for a long time. And so the patient had died. And so they had covered the patient up with the sheet. So the doctor was standing around with the family, um, who he had known all a long time. And suddenly they saw the twitch from, from under the sheet and right? get it up and he sits up <laughs> and he starts talking to everybody very coherently and and you know this one and then he just sort of sat back down dead and and my friend said he said unless those other people had been there with me he said i would have concluded that i had had a hallucination 
<laughs> it's just that uncanny when you say it, it really. Is. Oh, and what it. is that? It's I people who experience it. I think it's more common than people recognize. Yes, absolutely. It's now, it's now starting to be included on uh, uh, whatever the medical records are. Of oh. patients. There's now a, a you know a description on, on some of the description of terminal lucidity, and yeah. it just it's happened. And now they're starting to find that it's, it's quite common. Yeah. So, and, and bystanders often say, "Is what this man flew all the way from Australia to see me to tell me about the experience he had with his wife when he was dying, which is tough." And they had known each along each other a long time, and she was going down, down, and down to his horror. And then he said, one evening he he was getting ready to go to the store for a minute. And so he just wanted to come in this house and be right back. But when he walked in the room, he said it was like, oh, my God, she's perking up. And it was like they had a really heartfelt conversation. And he thought that she's turning around. So he went to the store. And as you can imagine, when he came back, she was dead. And I will remember that look on his face when he told me. He said, well, it was, he said, it was, it was like, he said, she already had one foot on the other side and the mystified look on his face. And it is, you know, it's, it's not something that is easy to put aside as oxygen deprivation to the brain. I'll tell you that. <laughs> not once people can see loved ones. I and mean, one of my friends, when his father died, no one had told him that a couple of his friends had passed away and, yeah. you know, he, same thing, terminal lucidity. Right. And he's looking around and he's seeing Joe and he's seeing Bob and they're like, no one ever told him. That's right. Yeah. These, these experiences are amazing. I mean, this in putting together this book, I feel like I've heard everything and seen everything. And I discovered that wasn't true in putting this book together. One of the things that was very unique to me, is that years ago, if you told a doctor you were, you were working on a book on a near, on near-death experiences, many of them would poo-poo it. They would deny that it took place. Uh, now you start to hear stories from physicians, and and the stories are many of the stories are in this in this book. We have a large number of physician stories, and and then some of them, like one that really amazes me, is is uh, people who see a mist coming out of someone who's dying. Yeah. Because not only have we spoken to several doctors who have <clears throat> come out of people who are dying, but the description of what happens is the same. Is that they'll see a mist and the mist forms and seems to get sucked into a tube or sucked into some hole. In or disappear through the ceiling. disappears through the ceiling. I mean, the description is the same, which is good news. Because it means that it's it's a legitimate phenomenon. If it's if it repeats certain elements, it's a legitimate phenomenon. Yeah, and what is that? <laughs> and you know, and like, why would would there be a need? I mean, I I just gotta say, I can't. I mean, I gotta be honest. I've seen it myself. I mean, I just holy mackerel, what was that? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I give up. And and you know why is it? It it's, it see, it presents itself to, as a mist to us, 
because um, a mist is a symbol of the unknown or the unknowable, I guess. And um, it's clouds themselves, which we now understood. To, you know, you remember in the eighth grade, you learned that that system of classifying the four types, the cumulus and the stratus and cirrus and nimbus and the, and, uh, you know, that came about in the 1830s because up to that time, see, it, the common sense was that clouds are unknowable because they are unintelligible, ephemeral, changeable, and they were the very symbol people. It's, it was what the people symbolized unknowability or unintelligibility that it's unstable. And because knowledge by contrast is something solid, stable, so that knowledge of the clouds would by definition be, and people were ridiculed, like up in the clouds, we say, you know, and in the clouds, we still say those things, but it, that was something utterly unintelligible and beyond reason and knowledge. Then this guy named Luke Howard, who was a pharmacist and who traveled in his business back and forth, was just interested in this, got to watching clouds through the carriage or whatever, and it, just, just drawing them. And then he realized, oh, my God, there's different types of them. Some of them are big and puffy. So he published this paper from a scientific society he belonged to. And it created a sensation because, as you can imagine, anybody who cared to read the paper and then wanted to walk outside could see he was right. Right? Because we can all see it for ourselves, once you? And so I think, you know, something like that has got to happen because this is so... What in the world are we dealing with with a mist coming out of somebody's body when they die? Do you know, guys, I mean, I give up. Do you guys think that being in the present moment and kind of having a peaceful mind lends to be, you know, having one of these shared death experiences? Because you said some people have them and some people don't. But I know most people that I see are so busy on their phones. That's that right. And so worried, are they going to be present where you say a physician there in the moment of someone's passing, you know, doctors you want to believe are really in the present moment to someone's health. And maybe that's being well, more present lends to more. Of I think there's a number of factors. I think you, you do have to have a peaceful mind, a present mind. Uh, but you also have a lot of have to have a lot of empathy. I think empathy is a real factor in all these experiences. Interesting. Uh, you know, people, people with empathy can be in a room with someone who's dying and, and they can lend their empathy to the person. And sometimes other people just can't do it. They just can't be around someone who's dying. Yeah. They can't be present. They want to get away from the present. Uh, I tell you, it's just, um, it is a mystery when a person who, almost dies as an experience of seeing another world. And it's a mystery multiplied when a bunch of people see, a, <laughs> see an afterlife, it, the death of somebody else. 
But, you know, the reality is we just don't have the mind to compute it. My hero of the afterlife thinking is still David Hume, the great skeptic who influenced Einstein, for example. He was 1711 to 1776, the archetype of the skeptic. He was so skeptic, he said, you know, as to, you know, the, as to the impressions which arise from their senses, he said, it's utterly beyond the rational possibility to determine whether that they, those things arise from the objects or are from the creative power of our mind or from the author of our being. You can't really decide, you know, it's like the whole assumption that we live in a, you know, physical world. That is all a product of consciousness and inferences about consciousness. And that's the real thing. And Hume said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Now, there's an understatement. And he went on to say, some new species of logic is required for that purpose. And some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Now, that is the brute reality. That's the real, that's the fact. No matter what anybody wants to say or, ah, you know, it's, that's the real fact. And so, see, it's traditionally been thought that that's the end of it, you know, that that's impossible to me. I say, no, absolutely not. We can do it. There are new ways of thinking logically. And as we, Sandra and I have talked about before, and that um, if you apply these new principles of logic, you can open faculties of your mind you didn't know you had. Mm-hmm. And that when you put those things together, we can actually prepare our minds in advance so that when subsequently we happen to have a near-death experience, we can come back and tell everybody else about it in a whole new way. I guarantee you it's already happened and it will happen again in the future. So what I'm saying is if you're curious about the afterlife and all, I just... What do we mean in this book by proof of an afterlife? I'm a logician. I, you know, I've studied proof. There's all different kinds of proofs. What I want to say here is, is there proof of an afterlife? That's what most people want to know. And from what I have studied and what I've listened to lots of people about what they mean when they're trying to say, what kind of proof do you want? What I can say is this, I can say that as a logician, a person who's taught logic and philosophy, I can say that it is a rational thing for you to anticipate that when you die, some amazing thing is going to happen that will sort of transfer you into a whole different level of reality. And that that's what I'm anticipating, not because I want to believe it. I mean, I'm not sure I want to believe it or not. 
it's not a matter of believing or disbelieving. It's, it is for me. And so, um, so in that sense, yeah, there's a proof. There's for those who, you know, not symbolic logicians or whatever, but just ordinary folks wanting to know is there a rational basis for this? Say absolutely. Absolutely. That's good news. Paul, what do you have to say about that? Well, I heartily concur with that. And I know I was did want to mention that there's uh, a lot of people who want to know how to access heaven's gate, if you will. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories they've come up with is the theory of background information. And what that says is, is that is that on a daily basis, we're hit by thousands, if not millions of bits of information. You know, everything from everything you see visually to everything you read, all your opinions, your own self-talk and other people's talk. And and that what happens when when people reach the state of, of having an afterlife open up to them is that somehow all of this background information, the unnecessary information is cleared out of their mind and they're able to focus on the real background information, which is is what happens to us on a, a supernatural way. And to do that, many people have, have uh, done deep meditations. They've done dark room meditations, things like that. And there's still a long way to go in, in, in uh, figuring out how to access this afterlife, if you will. But that's one theory of it, that, that once you clean out the background information, you have a, an open gate, if you will. I like it. What's the psychomantium? Okay. Well, that's something I found out about when I was 18 years old, which I thought was hogwash. But I, I am a great fan of the Greeks. And when I was 18, I had a great course reading Herodotus, the historian, who's the founder of history as we know it. And I was reading it, he says, this king, Periander, had misplaced something that his, he had, a friend of his had left for him to keep. So he was, he said he didn't know how to find it. So he sent a delegation to the Oracle of the Dead among the Thespertians on the river Acho. And they called up the spirit of his wife, Melissa, and she told them, you know, the information. So I was reading this and it was presented so matter of factful, you know. And I said, what's this? Because I had a great respect for Herodotus, but I knew at age 18 that that could happen. So I just, but then that same semester I learned about, yeah, these ancient Greek oracles of the dead. They wrote about them. They had places where you could go, where you go through procedures and you would seem to see and talk to deceased relatives. And so to make a very long story short, I also studied psychiatry and in altered states of consciousness. I had been studying for some time the phenomenon of, uh, where if you have a vacant space in your vision or field, like a, a glittering space or a a clear depth, they call it, like you can take a silver bowl and highly polish it on the inside, fill it with olive oil, and then in a darkened room, you gaze by candlelight or some low illumination. 
you gaze into that. And many people under those circumstances have these hypnagogic visions where they um, they see this very lifelike, not like mental imagery, but very lifelike three-dimensional visions. And I had known about that and I, I experimented it with my, my uh, psychology students. But in um, 1985, six, seven, <clears throat> I found in an archaeological journal <clears throat> that an archaeologist I already knew about, um, Soterios Dacaris, he was a very famous Greek classical archaeologist, had rediscovered this place, the Oracle of the Dead, and had excavated it based on what they found there was in the apparition chamber, they found a large cauldron, bronze cauldron, and it was surrounded by a balustrade. This was obviously the place you saw the visions, and there was torch marks on the wall showing it was illuminated. You stayed down there for 29 days, being talking about the person who died and so on. Then you were you went into a cut stone maze in complete darkness, felt your way into this chamber, and they are gazing into this apparition, into this, you saw the apparitions. Soterios hadn't figured that part out. I've had figured that part out. And and so I went to uh, to uh, his place and stayed 93 or something, 94. And I told him about, no, I think what it is is this, because I had recreated it by then. And he said, yeah, like then he realized he showed me some books of people saying he had just never put two and two together. But uh, I tried it out. You, you just set up a room where there's a mirror, uh, and it's a darkened room, but the mirror is placed higher than your line of vision, so you don't see your reflection. The room is darkened. You don't see reflections. There's a gentle light behind you, illuminated just gently. But the primary thing is the preparation. Like you, you think about, talk about with your friend, like the, the person who died. What was this person like? What are your best memories? What are your sticking points in the relationship? So then after this preparation, you go in there and you just gaze into the mirror and people have extraordinary things. I, mean, I was not expecting what the result i was uh, my graduate students of psychology then as time went the, my medical colleagues a psychiatry colleague uh, and a uh, clinical psychologist colleague and a sociology colleague and an anesthesiologist were my subjects and these were people who were informed about the mind so I figured that if anybody that did have a vision, they'd say, yeah, Raymond, I saw my grandma, or was it real, or was it fair? I don't know. That was what I was expecting. But imagine my surprise when my colleagues and graduate students came out of there, not saying I saw him, but yeah, I talked to my grandma. And it was startling to me. It was a way, I mean, I had no idea of what I tapped into and uh, what people say is that some say the image appears in the mirror and they uh, others say that yeah the image appears in the mirror but then the image comes out with into the room and they see them right to once in a while people get bugged or whatever um 
They, then other people say, yeah, I was sitting there in the chair, but my, my consciousness went through the mirror. And I, that's, there's another dimension where they may have met with their deceased relatives. But, but, and I had been expecting to say, oh, I don't know what was real or not. No, people say, I saw my grandma. It's, they interpret it as a real event. And it's about 30% of them hear the, what seems like an audible voice, but they say it's like amplified. Like there's a, one woman who had worked in telephony told me that she said it sounds kind of something like when you hear voice coming through telephone line. She said like an amplification. I heard that too, part of it when my, I heard my grandma. And so um, uh, people, the other 70% or so who don't hear an audible voice say that the communication is heart to heart or mind to mind. And so what is this? I give up. But it, we know for sure that it helps people with grief. I had not anticipated that part of it, to tell you the truth. But uh, people say, yeah, it really helps them through the grief. And then all kinds of wild things happen. Like Not that it's it's wild in itself, I know, but one of the things that happens, and about a quarter of them say that they saw some other deceased person known to them who had died, rather than or in addition to the person they came to see. So it doesn't necessarily go on what you would wish. One woman that happened to, she said, I realized she said the person I wanted to see was my husband person I needed to see was my father. So she prepared to see her father. And so, you know, what's going on here again? I don't know. Well, also, Raymond, there was one case where uh, a woman came to see her deceased daughter, was unable to see her. And this was uh, in the afternoon, was unable to see her. She went back to the hotel with her sister who had traveled yeah. with her. And uh, they, they talked about what had transpired, which you know, she had failed to see her daughter, when suddenly these orbs appeared in the room. Yeah, yeah it's just, and these people are just like as earthy and grounded. I mean, yeah, so I'm sorry. Both, yeah, three orbs appeared in the room and they moved around this woman. One of them moved close to her and she started to communicate with her psychically with this orb and felt as though her daughter was in that orb. This was at three 30 in the afternoon. So the room was bright. Her, her sister luckily took three photographs of it. And I can send you the photos for this show if you'd like. And there's these orbs. And, and this woman communicated with her daughter through one of these orbs, which that was the first actual case I had seen. Cause I've seen a lot of these cases where we had visual proof of uh, uh, of something coming out of the mirror. And, you know, I've encouraged Raymond before to maybe uh, put a camera in the psychomantium chamber to see if anything does come out of the mirror, but you can't really do that because it's kind of a violation of privacy. Well, also, I mean, I can't use cameras. I had to give up my camera years ago when they got clamped down on the airplanes. I couldn't take my magnesium out anymore from my flash. So, uh, yeah. 
Well, gentlemen, time has gone by pretty quick. You're loaded with stories. And in just a second, I want to ask if you guys have a closing word or two before we depart, but just a couple of announcements for our listeners or our viewers. First of all, I want to remind you this book that we're talking about, and there's lots of books to explore, is Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife. And I love that there are so many doctors included. And for me, it's stories. Stories, they give me goosebumps, but they just help me personally live a better life to know that there's so many reasons to believe in the afterlife. And I think that's one of the main reasons we we want to know our loved ones live on. Yes, we do. We want to know we live on, but we want to have a good life while we're here. So if we can take away that that fear and that constant thinking about death and just have that faith and that trust that something extraordinary happens, let's do it. So proof of life after life. Also, Dr. Moody's website is lifeafterlife.com and Paul's website is paulperryproductions.com. There's pages there with all the books written. There's so much material. There's no way we can get through everything in an hour. So this is just the tip of the iceberg. I know, gentlemen, the people that follow this show, they love to know. And so I know we're getting a lot of people that are interested in reading the book and watching your videos and seeing so much more. And our home base is wedontdie.com. Again, this is episode 405, which is crazy, crazy. So, you know, I am really passionate about this too. So you can feel free to come join me every Sunday. We do a free Sunday service online. It is super fun. But there's a medium demonstration included that just shows how close our loved ones truly are. And if you'd like a free copy of my book, you can just join my email list at the bottom of the we don't die.com page. It says it's just the first few chapters. The secret is it is the entire book because chapter 10 is how to survive grief. Grief, I think, brings a lot of us to the conversation and it's his own kind of beast. And there are some things we can do to help lessen the pain, move through it, feel better. And I just want to give you everything I know about that. So gentlemen, one at a time, some closing words, and then we'll let you find people have dinner (laughs) tonight. Dr. Moody? Well, for the folks listening and watching in, thank you so much for spending this time. And, you know, I'm just, um, I'm just so, just I'm struck beyond words that people will listen to what I have to say. I obviously love talking about it. And so I hope that what I've said has helped you and been interesting to you. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Paul? Well, I want to thank everybody for being open-minded enough to sit through this and understand that there's a lot of different things going on in the world that if they're open to them, it opens more and more and more. Uh, So thank you very much for joining us and uh, hope to see and hear you again. Bye-bye. Oh, thanks so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain. I'm always so happy to be your host on We Don't Die Radio. I personally do believe that life is an education for the soul and that our lives here on earth are important. I think it's just a matter of time before we each have one of those experiences and go looking for them. They're real. 
and be comforted that those last few moments, you never know what's going to happen before we transition to the other side. But I say we can get a whole lot of joy and pleasure out of this life. If it is an illusion, this thing called death, there are miracles that we can have while we're here on earth. We can go out, we can love, we can push the envelope into our things we fear. And there's all kinds of things that are possible when we just get outside of our comfort zone. So I'm Sandra Champlain. Thank you for listening or for watching. And we'll see you again soon.